All right, well, if you had your bulletin and you looked at the name of the sermon, you might have just gotten concerned. Because the name of the sermon, what did I name it? The Great Story of the Whole World. And then you saw the text that would be preached on this morning. And the text is the whole Bible. Uh-oh. You're thinking maybe it'll be just convenient to stay here until the Christmas party tonight. And we'll just kind of go through it. You don't even need to go home. Well, I want you to get a Bible. If you don't have one, we had uh, someone kind of hand them out. We're giving these away. We have several over there. If you need one, take it. I would really love for you to follow along with some of the portions I'm going to point out. I think it'll help you understand uh, the sermon better. I think it'll help you understand the Bible better. Because here's what I think happens around Christmas. Imagine this scenario. There's a few people in a room, they've been having a stimulating conversation for over an hour. This is not a random jump from one topic to another kind of conversation. This is a focused conversation where they're discussing something in depth. And you walk into this conversation long after it's already been started. You walk in, it's already been going on for over an hour. And you listen in and you hear names that are unfamiliar. You hear phrases that are foreign to you. You hear a story that really doesn't make sense because you're really jumping in right there in the middle of it. You politely sit for about 15 minutes and then you leave. Let's say that happens and then it happens again the next night. Same thing. And you come into that conversation that's been going on already for a number of hours, and you listen, and you hear the same unfamiliar stuff, the same names again, the same kind of jargon that you weren't familiar with, but you recognize it from the previous night, but you're still not quite sure about the whole conversation that's been going on, and so you leave about 15 minutes. And let's say that happens for an entire month. Every night you go into this conversation, you hear the same stuff, you hear the same part of the conversation, Now, what would begin to happen if that was you? I'll tell you what. In some cases, in some ways, you would be very familiar with all the names, all the jargons, all the technicalities of that conversation. You would begin to think you're very familiar with this, but at the same time, you would lack the context, right, of the whole conversation that would make it difficult for you to really understand what's being talked about. I think that illustrates how many people think about Christmas. Think about it. Every year, we hear about Jesus. We hear about a manger scene. We hear about shepherds. We hear about angels. We hear about wise men. The same usual suspects every single year. And some of us will say, of course, I know the story. I've heard it a million times. I grew up hearing the story of the inn that was too full, and the wise men from the east who followed the star. I've heard heard all those things. And yet, we are so familiar with those details, we actually think we know the story and we know the point, when in reality, we've walked into a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. And if we don't actually understand the whole of this conversation, the whole of this story, we will not actually be able to understand Christmas. So here's what we're going to do. I want to give you the whole story of the Bible. Because if you understand the big story of the Bible, you will understand why it is such a big deal that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You'll get to understand it in a way that I think maybe you've never understood it before. So we're, gonna, we're not necessarily going to just focus in on the Christmas story this year. We're going to zoom out and we're going to talk about the big story, the great story, the story of God's redemption. And if you are kind of foreign to the Bible, maybe you've never really studied it on your own, consider this an introduction. Consider this a big picture, zoom out, introduction to the story of the whole Bible. You are going to get this morning an introduction to the whole Bible. What is the Bible? You might ask. What is the Bible? 
What do you think the Bible is? Many people have given their different answers to that question. 50 plus years ago, Soviet Russia put out a dictionary, their own government's dictionary of foreign words, and they defined the Bible this way, that the Bible is a collection of different legends, mutually contradictory, and written at different times, and full of historical errors, issued by churches as a holy book. That's one government's view of what the Bible is. Of course, that same government went on to systematically kill 20 million individuals, so I don't know that we should trust their assessment of the book. The French philosopher Voltaire said this about the Bible. He said, A hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. He said that, of course, 200 years ago. And gathered all around the world right now are people wanting to hear from the Bible. Despite its critics, the Bible is by far the most printed, the most purchased, the most read, the most studied, the most cherished book in human history. It is the most discussed book. It is the most preached book, the most proclaimed book, the book that has been spreading all around the world. It is the book that we must admit has provided hope, peace, inspiration, courage, transformation, for millions of people throughout all ages. And you might ask the question, well, what makes it so enduring? Why is it that people keep coming back to it? Why even this morning all these people here are gathered to hear about the Bible and at several other churches all around our city and millions of churches all over the globe, people want to hear what the Bible says. Apparently, not everyone feels about the Bible what Soviet Russia said about the Bible or what even Voltaire said about Bible. Many people, in fact, think that the Bible's much like what Martin Luther said of it, and I'll read what he said. He said this, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Many of us are here this morning because that has happened to us. The story of the Bible, the message of the Scriptures has absolutely grabbed hold of us transformed us, turned us upside down, changed our lives from the inside out. And now you are here, and I don't know what your relationship to the Bible is, if you've ignored it, or if you've studied it, if you've read it, or you've picked pieces here and there to look at from time to time. But here you are encountering this book that has transformed millions, that has been divisive, that some people have died for, and some people have killed those who have embraced it. So do you really know what the Bible is? Has it grabbed hold of you? We're going to do something this morning that's maybe a little bit unusual. We're going to look at the entire story of it and jump from place to place. And I really would encourage you to open up a Bible and follow along. This sermon will feel a little bit like Charles Dickens' classic novel, The Christmas Story, or A Christmas Story. What we're going to do is divide it up into three parts. We're going to look at our past, we're going to look at our present, and then we're going to look at our future. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about all these things, where we came from, what is all this here for, the biggest questions you've ever asked. And then we're going to look at what's happening now in our world and what's happening right now, this very moment, as we bring the word to bear on the lives of those listening. And then we're going to finish by going into the future and looking at the future of humanity, the future of our world. These are all huge questions for you. I wonder if you understand truly what the Bible says about these things. Open up in your Bible, if you've got it, to Genesis chapter 1. I think if you've got a Bible, just about any Bible that you own, you'll find it on page 1. Hope that didn't sound condescending. It meant to be helpful. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. And if you're in Genesis chapter 1, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to turn back a couple pages to the table of contents. In your table of contents, you'll find 66 books, 
There will be several of these books that you'll recognize the names. There are 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Bible's broken up into those two parts. The Old Testament referring to what God did with his chosen people called Israel. And the New Testament describes the coming of Christ, his life in the Gospels, the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection explained in the epistles. And then there are even toward the end there in Revelation, there's a book that tells us about the future, what Jesus will come to do. So this tells us really the story of the whole world, our past, our present, and our future. And if you really want to understand this world in which you live, you do have to understand the Bible. And so we're there in Genesis chapter 1, and I want to, before we even read that first verse, I'm going to ask you again that question I already asked you, is what do you think the Bible is? How do you treat the Bible? I think there are even a lot of Christians here that treat the Bible like it's some sort of encyclopedia, that if you have some question about some spiritual matter, you can look up some entry, and you can find something that will answer your question. Some people think maybe the Bible's more like a collection of morality tales, something more like Aesop's fables, where you read stories about uh, courage or uh, the weak triumphing over the strong. You read stories, you are, feel encouraged, you feel inspired, and then you go on with your life, and you maybe try to apply some of the principles that you find in those stories. Well, I think both of those would be an incomplete understanding of what the Bible is. In reality, the Bible could be described as more like a saga, a collection of real history and real correspondence and real law code, all kinds of different genres of literature that create a kind of saga that tell the story of God's revelation to mankind about who He is and what He's like and what He's done and how He's accomplished salvation for His people. It's a story that takes place over hundreds, even thousands of years. Every book written by different people from different places. We have even different languages originally. We got some Greek and some Hebrew in the, there in the Bible. But all of them are telling really the same story of who God is, who we are, what God commands the world, what's going to happen to the world, and what we are to do in the world that He created. And it all starts with these words. That you're there in Genesis chapter 1, Verse 1, some of you could say it from memory, I'm sure. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There it is. That's how it all begins. There's a beginning to this story, and the story begins with a God speaking, as we'll come to see in the following verses, the universe into existence. He is so powerful that everything comes into existence by His command. And you see in the following verses that everything He makes is good. It is good. It is good. It is a repeated refrain in Genesis chapter 1. Here's the first thing we learn about our past is that all things come from God. Immediately, this verse, the very first verse in the Bible, eliminates all kinds of worldviews that are opposed to the Christian worldview. Think about it. Genesis chapter 1 eliminates, first of all, the possibility of atheism because it declares without apology that God exists. It eliminates the possibility of agnosticism, the fact that we don't know, because we have a God who exists and in His Word is telling us that He exists. He is speaking to us that we might know Him. Third, we understand that polytheism cannot be true because God created everything. That He is the one Creator God. There are no other gods except Him. We see that pantheism, the idea that creation is God, that the people God made is God, that the creation is one with God, all that cannot be true because God is separate and distinct from His creation. God speaks and creation comes into being. God simply is. And by His sovereign and powerful Word, He brings into existence that which was nothing, he brings it, everything into existence. And so the very first verse draws a line, a clear line, between that which was created and that which is uncreated. The uncreated being is God. God is not dependent on anything. God is independent. He is not derived from anything. He exists outside creation. He's not a figment of your imagination. You did not make Him up. You cannot change who He is by merely hope, wishing that He's something else. 
He simply is, and creation must deal with his existence. We do not create God. Verse 1 lets us know that. You've probably heard someone say this. Well, my God would never dot, 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 fill in the blank. The God I believe in would not be like this. He would be like this. Think about that statement. Isn't that a fascinating statement that someone would think that they can just by hoping that God is a certain way, cast him into existence in their own image? The fascinating statement, is God there in your own mind that you just have the ability to make him up? Does he exist in your pocket? You can pull him out whenever you desire. Shape him and fashion him into whatever shape you want him to be. No, the very first verse of the Bible says that God is, he creates, everything comes into existence through him and by him and for him. He therefore defines all things, right and wrong, truth and error, all are defined by God and People cannot sit back and try to make up God to be whatever they want him to be. Someone might have come along and told you at some point that there was nothing. And that nothing exploded. And somehow created a beautiful, extravagant, and complex universe. Maybe you believed that. And that belief would take a lot of faith. The Bible presents a different option. God created it. He spoke it into existence. And it's a good creation. That it reflects some of his own goodness. This is the first part of our story that we encounter, but this is not the last. I would encourage you now to look in your Bibles at chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 27. In 26, we see that God creates man as kind of the crown glory of his creation. He creates everything the seas and the land and the stars and the moon and the, everything is created by him. And then he creates man. In verse 27, this is what he says about man. And to really understand who we are, we need to understand this. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is who we are. Uh, the image of God in man. You ever thought about what that might mean? That you and every single other person who's ever been in existence was made in God's image. I like to think of this as something like a, uh, that we're like mirrors that reflect. Think of yourself like an angled mirror, okay? And the light of the glory of God shines down on you because you're made in his image and because you're at the angle, you are meant to reflect his goodness, his character, his glory to the world around you. Everybody does reflect something of the image of God because we're all made in God's image. This is why, by the way, in the Christian worldview, that we believe everyone is worthy of dignity and respect. Everyone is worthy to be treated well, equally, because they are image bearers, that we never have the right to take uh, life without uh, there being good biblical reason. We know and understand that God invests his own image and reflection in every single person that exists. That exists. This is also, by the way, that people can do good things in the world, even if they're not Christians. People can run a good business, be honest, provide for their families, help friends in need, and many people do because they're made in the image of God. They're image bearers. And any good thing any person does, even if they're not Christian, no matter what religion they are, if there's any true goodness in the world, the only reason it exists because God made people in his image. Now, someone might have come to you at some point and said, no, man is the result of billions of random chemical processes, that the people who exist on the planet today are the current iteration of an ever-evolving life. Our great ancestors were apes, or go back further, they were jellyfish. Understandably, if you were to embrace that belief, you would have your sense of purpose and destiny snuffed out. Life would become random, meaningless, that we are just pops and fizzes in a world that is cold and dark and going nowhere. Hollow men and women with no purpose to live for, whose lives are utterly meaningless. But that's not what the Bible presents in the very first chapter, that God created everything and that he gave us 
this word in the first chapter that tells us who we are, we are made in His image. That we are made for Him and for His glory. You are created by God. I don't care what you believe. Even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are made in God's image. He gives a little bit of His own reflection to you. That you are to live for Him and to reflect His goodness and His creativity and His glory in the world that you are put in. But here's the third thing we learn about ourselves in Genesis. Not in chapter 1. I would encourage you now to turn over a page and look at chapter 3. I'm not going to go through this in detail. I would encourage you to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 on your own later. Because it's in this section that we find that the people God made rebelled against Him. That they turned from Him. That God in chapter 2 had given them clear directions for how they ought to live. That was to be in faithful and fruitful obedience. And there was one tree that they were not supposed to eat of. But there in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes and tempts, tempts Eve. And Eve eats the forbidden fruit and therefore plunges all humanity into sin. And immediately following, I want you to notice something. What happens? In verse 8, right after the fall, we see that they're hiding from God. Adam and Eve are now hiding from God, the God that they were made to share a relationship with. In verse 10, they're afraid of Him. In verse 12, they begin blaming each other. In other words, sin, notice this, sin is first and fundamentally against God, but it very quickly results in dysfunctional, broken relationships with people around you. I'm sure you've seen this in marriages, in households where dysfunction reigns. And what we are introduced to in Genesis chapter 3 is this, the biggest problem in the whole Bible and therefore, the biggest problem in the whole world is the reality of sin. Every great story has a conflict, right? Some of you are story buffs, movie buffs. You love reading a good book. And I think that sometimes the, the book is made better when the conflict is better. The story advances when there's a great big problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, you could think of Jurassic Park, right? What's the big problem in that movie? The dinosaurs all get out. It's the problem. The whole rest of the movie is about what? Fixing the problem. Well, what is the problem here in Genesis chapter 3? Is that sin breaks out into the world. And it wreaks havoc wherever it goes. It causes spiritual death and physical death and broken relationships. And there's a curse that falls upon all the world because of sin. And so think about this. That what we encounter in the first three chapters of the Bible are some of the biggest questions you'll ever ask. Where did we come from? God made us. Who are we? We're image bearers. What are we supposed to do to live for His glory in the world? What's our big problem? It's called sin. Some people believe that if you just try really hard to be good, then God will understand and He will accept you on the basis of your sincere efforts. But if you wanted to go back to, I won't make you turn there, but if you looked at the table of contents, and you looked at the various books of the Old Testament, you would find books like Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and as our men's equipping group that has been reading all these books has discovered, what you would find is that mankind cannot fix himself. Over and over again, you see that the things just get worse and worse and worse, don't they? That sin is outside of the human ability to fix. Even if we get the best king ruling over us, we cannot fix our problem. Even if the situation is great and we're in the land that God promised to be in, we cannot fix our problem. We are utterly broken. And we cannot do anything to fix it. And some people will say, well, we're not that bad. We're, we're not as bad as we could possibly be. I mean, maybe the Bible presents sin a little bit too harshly. Judges, though, I would say the book of Judges has this refrain. It comes up a few times. Listen to this. He says, everyone, and he's describing a people that are sinful. He says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That helps us understand the nature of sin. 
See, sin, sometimes we think it's this evil wickedness that expresses itself in horrendous acts of, of human violence. But you know how the Bible defines it there in the book of Judges? True wickedness is defined like this. Do what's right in your own eyes. Do what you think is right. You see, the human problem is so deep that the things we think are right are not right. Because we have so run away from God that we are not familiar with His Word that we do not know how to relate to Him rightly. And so here we come to kind of summarize what we're seeing here in the Old Testament. We are able to explain the world, aren't we? We have a pretty good explanation of the world. You, you see, we're getting a lot of technological advances these days. You probably notice the different things that come out and what Tesla's doing and what Apple's doing and the amazing advance in technology. We all love what is happening there. We're seeing there's more education available than any time in human history, that there's more medical treatment available to people than any generation in human history. But let me ask you this. Are we more united now? Are we any closer to that utopia that we all dream of? You see, what the Bible explains, we experience in reality. That we're seeing that no matter how hard we try, no matter how advanced we get, no matter how much technology increases, no matter how much our medicine enhances our ability to stay healthy, the fundamental problem of humanity is that we are separated from God because of sin. We're broken sinful, rebellious people, and our rebellion is not always expressed in this violence that's overt, but it's simply expressed in what Judges says, that we like to do what we like to do. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. And what the Bible, especially we see in the Old Testament, our sin deserves punishment. We are going to face a judge. Now, all of this might be really bad news. If you're hearing this, you might say, wow, the Bible's really a bad book of bad news, isn't it? Well, I've left something out. Starting at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you get a hint of a promise that there would be someone who would crush the head of the serpent. And as you read through, you get these promises that God is holding out to His people and to the world that there will be a blessing that's available to those who trust Him. In Deuteronomy 18, there's a promise of a coming prophet who will be like Moses. Moses rescued his people from Egypt, but this coming one would be greater than Moses and would rescue his people in a greater way, from a greater captivity. And then we get to the prophet Isaiah, who has these amazing promises of someone coming, someone coming who will be a child, who will grow up and be a king, who will be a conqueror. I'll read to you one of these prophecies, and I'll guarantee you're familiar with it. You've heard it every Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born. This is talking about a prophecy of someone who would come. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there will be no end. A child is coming, the prophet said. There's a prophet, a prophecy, a promise that someone will come and undo the curse. There's a promise that someone will come who can bring healing. There's a promise that someone will come and bring forgiveness. And he will rule in righteousness and holiness. And all the brokenness we suffer through in this world will be banished. And all the ancient people in Israel who were faithful longed for the coming of this person. Isaiah 53, then. There's this other prophecy that, yes, he will come as a child and a king and a conqueror, but Isaiah 53 changes the note a little bit. It's almost a dissonant note in a choir. And you go, what does that mean? Listen to this. Mark mentioned it in his prayer. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, surely he, this child, this king who grew up, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see this promise that is woven in all throughout the Old Testament. There's a coming one. He's going to crush the head of Satan. He will be like a prophet who sets his people free. He will be like a king who rules, but he will suffer. He will die in the place of his people. He will take upon himself their sins, their guilt, their shame, and he will be stricken. Could you imagine what's being described here happening to you? Imagine you being convicted and guilty of a crime that you know you've committed. That you're guilty before a judge and the penalty is death. And could you imagine someone saying, no, I will take your iniquity upon myself. I will take your sin upon me. I will be punished in your place. I will bear the punishment that you deserve so that you don't have to bear it yourself. Well, this was the promise that God keeps issuing to His people. And this is what we glory in, church, isn't it? That there has been provided a substitute. That there would be a substitute who would die in our place. This is why we sing things like this. We had our men's equipping group sing about this our last time we met. In the song, It Is Well. It's one of my favorite verses ever put to music. It goes like this. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That there would be one who would come and bear the guilt and the sin and the shame of his people. So we don't have to bear it ourselves. And then what happens at Christmas time? A child is born. He's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. They say that he's Jesus who will save his people from their sins. And Jesus grows up and he starts saying things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14 says. He says things like this. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. He says things like this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And what happens? Jesus lives a perfect life. Jesus goes voluntarily to the cross to die as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He rises then from the dead. And guess what he says to his disciples? He says, go tell everyone what I have done. Teach the nations what I have done. Help everyone to come to know the one way you can be reconciled to God. That all happened about 2,000 years ago. That's the story of our past. That's going to be the longest part because we needed to catch up on that conversation that's been going on that we've been missing out on. All of that has brought us to today that God has made a promise with humanity that anyone who embraces by faith His Son will be forgiven and reconciled to God. That though they are image bearers made in the image of God, they have fallen, but they can be forgiven and reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. It is a promise that is sent from heaven that is meant to be given to all the world that you need to hear right now. And that brings us to right now, the present. Let's take a look at the present. What God has done for His image bearers through His Son, Jesus Christ. The message of the saving grace of God is being spread to every corner of the globe right now. This is amazing. Listen to this. The Bible is by far the most printed book, the most sold book in the history of the world. The latest estimate, and this is years old, the number is certainly higher now, is that there are 5 billion, with a B, billion Bibles distributed all over the globe in thousands of different languages. One statistic says that 273,972 Bibles are being sold or given away every single day. That means 190 Bibles every minute. That means every second, over three Bibles are being distributed to people in need. The YouVersion Bible app. You got it on your phone? 268 million downloads by 2017 in over 1,074 different languages. 
There are hundreds of thousands of, of churches in America that ought to be preaching the Bible. Many of them are preaching the gospel. And millions of others, Christians, all around this world that are taking with them this good news of salvation. Their desire is to take it to every corner of the globe. And here's what the Bible says is happening. As this word goes out from the mouth of the preachers and the missionaries and the Christians, the words of God being distributed through His people. The Bible teaches that the Word of God is like the sun, in a way. In this way. That every human heart is either like wax or like clay. That when the sun shines on wax, what happens? It melts. It becomes shapeable, moldable, changeable. But when the sun shines on clay, what happens to the clay? It becomes hard, unchangeable, only by breaking it. And so it is with the Word of God as it's going out to the ears that hear. The people who hear by faith are being melted. They're being humbled. They're being transformed as they receive the truth. They're being conformed to the image of Christ who is the perfect man. But those who do not hear it with faith Every time they hear the Word of God, they're being hardened. They're being stuck more and more in their ways. Unwilling and unable to break out of what they're stuck in because of their hard-heartedness. And that brings us to what's happening this very moment. You are here. You are hearing the Word of God. The promise of God has now come to you. And maybe you expected a nice little sermon about some shepherds. But there's a message that's for you this morning about the Son of God and what He's done in the Incarnation and in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. And it's being presented to you. And this could be the most important moment of your life. And who you are going to be before God rests on how you respond to this message. And I will just use the words of God Himself to speak to you because this is what He says in Isaiah 55, verse 1. He says to you this morning, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, what God says to you right now is that there is a free salvation there is no cost, no strings attached. It's yours if you want it. If you're thirsty, come and drink. If you're hungry, come and eat. If your soul longs for this salvation, it's yours in Christ. Come and get it. It's free. You need not become a different person. You need not become better before you come. You need to come and trust that God will transform you. And if you're not a Christian, You've not repented and trusted in Christ and Christ alone. Listen to this. God has arranged your entire life so that you would be right here, right now, listening to what God has to say to you. And what He has to say to you is the gate is wide open, the door's unlocked, there's nothing you need except to come to Christ. And everyone who comes to Him by faith in repentance will be saved. You come to Him for mercy, it's all yours. You come to Him for grace, you will be drowning in a sea of grace. He loves to give grace to those who are sinners and know it and come to Him for mercy. If you come to Jesus, He will not be standing there with His hands clenched in anger. His arms will be wide open for you. If you come to Jesus by faith, He will not be looking at you with angry eyes and a furrowed brow. His eyes will be wet with tears of joy to receive another one of His lost sinners. All the heavens will rejoice, the Bible says, when one of God's lost lambs come home. And so if you've never come, come. What would hold you back? Why would you not want to? It's all free. And it's all yours in Christ. I want to finish by taking a look into your future. 
the book of Revelation. It's the very last book of the Bible. I want you to turn all the way to the very end of the story. If you have one of the Bibles we gave you, you'd find it on page 603. Revelation 21. Mark already read it. Let me read it again. Then I saw a new heavens, starting in verse 1, 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's this world. Passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming out down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It always was, but sin broke that. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who is sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. There it is again, friends. It's totally free. To the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's a look into the future, and it's utterly striking. A new heaven. Everything in this world is falling apart. You might even be experiencing that your own body feels broken these days. That it's falling apart too. And here you get this new heaven and this new earth. Something that we've never known. New. Fresh. Pure. Good. Restored. And even more glorious than the fact that the creation will be new. Look at this. Verse 4. No more tears. No more death. Oh, how we long for that. No more mourning, sadness, no more crying. Your tears wiped away personally by a God who knows you intimately. In verse 6, that thirst that you've always had, that aching thirst that could never be satisfied in this life, you will drink freely and be satisfied in a way that you've never been satisfied in all your life. The curse will be lifted. We sing, and we will sing at the end, Joy to the World. And there's that stanza that's not as popular as the other ones. It says this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infect the ground. Listen, He, this is that Son, this is that Savior, this is that King, He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found like that part in the Lord of the Rings at the very end with Sam and he sees Gandalf (laughs) and he thought Gandalf was dead and he says I thought you were dead but then I thought I was dead myself and then he says this is everything sad going to come untrue what has happened to the world can you imagine us Christian in this new heavens and new earth looking at each other This life will have felt like death to us. And we'll look at each other and go, it's all coming undone. It's all coming untrue. The great glory of the Lamb will be our light forever and ever, and we will reign with Him for all eternity. Who is going to be there in this place? Verse 26, the thirsty. Sorry, 21, verse 6. Those who have thirsted and cried out to the Savior. Verse 7 of 21, those who conquer with Christ. If you look to 22, verse 3, those who are called servants of the Lamb, those who gave their lives to serving Christ, verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 7, those who keep the words of the prophecy, chapter 22, verse 14, those who wash their robes and find the forgiveness in Christ, there is a real heaven. And who will be there? It is those who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior, have reached out with with faith to Him and repentance to Him. And therefore they conquer with Him and they become His servants. But we need to end with this. This isn't the only thing we see at the very end. There's another vision. 
that is brought up. And it's of the people who are left out of the kingdom. The people who don't wind up there. So many people think that this is a place reserved for the super evil. The Hitlers. The murderers only. Those particularly wicked people, they get a spot. The Bible presents it in a different way. That anyone who's still under the curse will not enter in. Chapter 21, verse 8, gives a list of people who will be left out of this glorious new heavens and new earth. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This isn't the only place. All throughout the Scriptures there is described a place of torment, of judgment, of condemnation, where those who have rejected that promise will spend their eternity. Chapter 21, verse 27 says this, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will enter this place. If you have not had your sins forgiven, you are still yet unclean, and you will not enter the new heavens and the new earth to be reconciled to God forever. You go to chapter 22, verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is the bad news that must be declared for us to understand the good news. This is what we are saved from, Christians. And if you have not come to Christ yet, this is what you can be saved from this morning. Not a lot of people talk about hell these days. Not a lot of churches will talk about hell these days. Churches that are meant to be preaching the full counsel of God sometimes leave out the idea of judgment, which is from beginning to end of the Bible. Hell used to be more popular. In fact, it was a common theme in literature throughout the ages. In the ancient work, the Aeneid, hell was described like this. From hence are heard the groans of ghosts, the pains of sounding lashes and of dragging chains. Dante, in his Inferno, depicts nine different layers of hell, each layer being worse than the previous, of horrendous types of suffering. In John Milton's Paradise Lost, he depicts hell like this, quote, it's a horrible, or a dungeon horrible, on all sides round as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light but rather darkness visible, served only to discover new sights of woe. And perhaps what is more disturbing and frightening than these descriptions of hell is what the Bible actually says about it. That it is real. That it is eternal. And it is a place of suffering for those who do not have a Savior. Let me ask you a question that many people will not ask you. By the standards set forth in the Scriptures, are you going to hell? Are you cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? Or are you yet unclean? Do you fit into the categories of the list we've just read of people who will be left out of heaven? Have you embraced Christ by faith? And let me tell you with the divine certainty of the Word of God that if you have not come to Christ, there remains for you no other way. He is the only way. He is the door. He is the shepherd who will shepherd His people to glory. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. Who is that child in the manger? He's your only hope. And he did not remain a child. He grew up. He lived the perfect life and he died a substitutionary death on the cross and he rose from the dead and he's alive right now in 
from the right hand of the throne of heaven, he extends grace to you. He has done everything needed for salvation. You must repent and believe. And the moment you do that, you could be the worst sinner here. You could be the wickedest, most vile sinner on the planet. The moment you do that, he will absolutely forgive all your sin. You will be restored to right relationship with him. And all these promises of the new heavens and the new earth are yours for all eternity. It's free. Would you pray with me? And after we pray, we're actually going to have the privilege of welcoming new members and celebrating new life in Christ for those who have believed in the gospel and want to express publicly their faith in baptism. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. It gives us the true story of the whole world. I ask for those who are unsure of this message, that you would open their eyes right now, that they would give their heart to you in faith and believe that this is true. And they would also embrace that the salvation is true, that it's theirs. And that they would even right now have assurance that the burden is lifted, the judgment is gone, there's no condemnation, and they're reconciled to you. I pray that you would do that right now. I pray that those of us who are already in Christ would rejoice at our destiny, at this glorious gospel, and that this time, this season, would not just be merely thinking about a child in a manger, but thinking about a great salvation we've been given in Christ. So Lord, thank you for this amazing work of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.